Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast and a much happier new year to you all from lockdown London. I'm Barney Hoskins. I'm on a laptop screen with my colleagues, Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. Martin Collier. Hi, Barney. And Jasper Mearson Bowie. Hello, Barney. And also on the screen is this episode's very special guest, Mr. John Simon. Hello, John. Hi, Barney. Great <laughs> to see you. Thanks for joining us at the start of the year. John is beaming in from sunny Florida, but he's more famously associated with New York and Woodstock, where he produced magnificent albums by the band, Janis Joplin, Leonard Cohen, and many other legends. He's written a very good book about his musical adventures called Truth, Lies, and Hearsay, and we're going to talk to him about it and hear clips from a Van Morrison audio interview and say goodbye to Jerry Marsden and MF Doom. John, your book is a very witty and unsentimental account of your career as a producer, piano player, songwriter. What I'm interested to know, what did you learn about yourself and your work while you were writing it? Well, you know, the thing about interviews, and I do very few of them, is I'm much better with a written word than I am with a spoken word. So besides swearing uncontrollably, I don't get my <laughs> the answers formulated well. You've asked one of the most difficult questions I've ever been asked, which is... <laughs> Sorry about that. If I may paraphrase you, you said, in writing this book, what did I learn about writing this book? Is that sort of what you asked? Well, no, what did you write? What did you learn about yourself? Did you, at the end of it, kind of look back on your career in any different sort, with any ah, different kind of perspective? Ah, was what I meant. That, I <laughs> it wasn't see, a meta a, question. No. Uh, okay. <laughs> well, an interesting thing that I learned was this. I started out with a musical gene. I started playing piano when I was four years old, and I took to it. I just loved it. Piano has been my comfort in life ever since. If I go to a party, I'm not too social with people. I can usually offend people pretty quickly. So instead of doing that, I'll go, and if I see a piano in the room, I'll just go right to that, my friend, my idiot friend. Yeah. So let me see if I can go back to what the question was. Oh, yeah. So in my professional career, I've always thought, well, a good thing, besides being appreciated by my peers, which is just wonderful, was to make a living at this thing that I can do. So when a door would open that was somehow related to any use of my musical gene, I went through it. And one of the first doors that opened was to be a record producer at Columbia Records. Now, that was just wonderful. But at the same time, I had to sort of push to the rear my own professional creative juices, if you will, you know, and I became a helper for someone else's creative output. And it was a joyful thing and a lot of fun and everything like that. But some part of me was saying, mm, I want my chance. I've got stuff inside of me. I want to get out, out there too. And I was able to do that at, at a certain point. But, but always in the back of my mind was this frustration that, you know, I can, where, why aren't people singing my songs? Why don't they know about my songs? You know, it, it was, it was, you know, a self-centered thing. I'll, you know, admittedly, then cut to about three years ago, I got this mysterious email message from someone in New Zealand. I'd never spoken to anyone from New Zealand in my life. <laughs> and they were not you know, trying to sell me a kiwi or anything like that. They were inviting me to go to New Zealand 
to be part of a 45th anniversary of the last waltz. Now, why they picked the number 45 instead of the number 40 or number 50, it's probably because everyone was dying off quickly and they better do it before they hit 50. So they invited me to go over there and I went over with Garth Hudson, the two of us. Wow. And we recreated The Last Waltz in a series of concerts around New Zealand. And I must say that the, the performances were remarkable. The performers were great. Not only did, were they able to, to replicate the sounds of the original performance in The Last Waltz, but they brought something special to it. Their musicianship was great. But while I was doing this and whipping them into shape, I all of a sudden got an appreciation for my ability to do that. You know, forget the idea that I had my own stuff that I wanted to get out there. I was able to bring the best out of them and to tailor what was happening in the room and, you know, fix it so that it came out. Boom, it was great. And I said, oh, well, I just learned this something about myself. And uh, so that was not... You know, that doesn't relate to writing the book so much, but it is in the book. Maybe <laughs> think about it. I told that story in the book. So that doesn't answer your question, but it was a nice long it's a answer. Great so answer. It's a great answer. <laughs> it's a great answer to some question. <laughs> and I didn't know about the New Zealand shows. I mean, just to put this in context, Mark and Martin and I go way back as like just massive band fans and, and massive fans of yours. And Martin said to me, have it, like, I guess two years ago, have you read John Simon's book yet? And I, and I hadn't. And uh, actually, I borrowed Martin's copy and recently returned and I really loved it. And so, I mean, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to open this up to, to my colleagues because I know that they're, they're going to be like burning desires to ask you all kinds of questions about the band, but also, Janice Joplin, Taj Mahal, Bobby Charles, perhaps. It really kind of touched on all this stuff. Mark, Mark, Mark's put up the blue hat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, John, I, I just want to say that you either produced or co-produced three of my absolute favourite albums of all time. I mean, particularly the band's second album, which I think if I had one Desert Island disc to take to an island, that would be the record I'd take. Me too, please, uh, sir. <laughs> Martin and I were art school together in the 70s and he got a copy of the Bobby Charles album and he gave me his copy because I think he had another copy of it, probably. And that's a fantastic record. You, you co-produced that with Rick Danko, is that correct? Rick, and then, yeah, yeah, but didn't get the credit, right? Didn't get the credit. <laughs> well, and then there's, then there's the Taj Mahal album the, with the four-piece tuba horn section, Big Need Garland, John Ain't It Hard. It's just oh. gorgeous. Yeah. So yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm going to sit back now. Sorry, that's me gushing. <laughs> yeah, we have to get somewhere into this podcast, Just. We have got to get John's piano solo on Ain't Gwen Whistle Dixie No More because <laughs> it's just sensational. And Taj at the end of it does go, John Salmon! <laughs> so we, we have to have... <laughs> Wasn't that badly edited, John? Didn't didn't you have some issue with the? Oh yeah, boy, you're referencing so many things. I'm having to take notes so I can <laughs> sorry, respond to all these things. All right, boys. <laughs> okay, Bobby Charles album, producing the Bobby Charles album. That was just sort of a, I think I don't know why we were three of us listed as producers, Bobby, Rick, and myself, probably so that no one could make a decision without the other two approving. 
But functionally, <laughs> my skill in this was corralling all the insanity and putting it together, making a record. Rick's was just, you know, his wild inspirational stuff. And Bobby's was being Bobby and giving us the raw material. So all kinds of you know, wild and wonderful things happened. There's a horn section at the end of that, one of the things that was actually, I could play a little bit of trombone. Garth Hudson was there playing tenor. And Dave Sanborn, who plays an E-flat alto saxophone, was playing an E-flat baritone saxophone, which he had very little experience with. And so we listened to the track, one of the few overdub. I don't like to overdub. I like to do everything live, but this was an overdub situation. So we overdubbed the horns, there's three of us. Then we overdubbed them again, that's six of us. Then we overdubbed them again, that was nine of us. Then Rick <laughs> and Bobby said, well, John, put them together. So there I was at the you know console with nine tracks of horns, pulling out the best licks from each one and putting it together. And then we realized we all have, we have, these are all bass clef low instruments. So we needed something on the top for the climax of this horn thing. So I thought, well, let me get something real, somebody really good. So I went to Count Basie's orchestra. As you do. Went to New York City and overdubbed Joe Newman to the end of it. And we put him in there. And that was, that was our horn thing. That's Bobby Charles. So can I just ask a question about that, John? Sure. So Bobby Charles didn't play an instrument at all. No, he did not. So therefore, he had to explain the songs. I mean, he'd give you, he'd give you the lyrics and hum the tune? or He had a good melodic sense. And generally, he's only talking about three chords anyway. So from the melody that he's singing, you can imply the chords that are, yeah. that are there. But it was a marvelous session. You know, there's a, one song in there... Is it about apple trees or something like that? Yeah, where, good place now. Yeah, right. Where now. Amos Garrett and I are both playing live, and we in one place we both played this little fill, this little lick, and it was a little curlicued, complicated little lick, and we both ended up playing the same exact lick in unison. Oh, fantastic! And, uh, I mean, if you listen to it carefully, you hear we you know, we both start off in one place with them and go right together at the end. <laughs> Uh, I, I also, I mean, Amos Garrett, who again, Mar- Martin and I just absolutely adore as a player, and on Tennessee Blues, some, with Garth playing accordion, mm-hmm. I believe. Yeah. It's just one of the most beautiful things I've ever heard in my life. It's just mm-hmm. sensational. Mm-hmm. I mean, Martin mm-hmm. and I spent a long time just chasing Amos Garrett guitar solos, whether they're on Paul Butterville Better Days or <laughs> Miriam Mulder, you know. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, I think we, we all think of the Bobby Charles album as a sort of kind of adjunct really to the band's catalogue. It's almost like a band album. And maybe the ultimate Woodstock slash Bearsville record, John. It brings so many different people together. What I wanted to ask you was that there's this pivotal moment in your career, you write about it in your book, and I think you and I have talked about it before, which is, and it's this, we often say this on the podcast, is there a parallel universe in which John Simon stayed a Columbia staff producer for 25 years, never produced a band and, and, and so forth, and never produced Bobby Charles? Is that Al Cooper suggesting you go off and become freelance? Was that a, is that a critical moment in your career? Oh, sure. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Okay, that's the answer to that question. Yes. As I said earlier, I mean, the band's second album is, is just astonishing. Now, you recorded that Sammy Davis Jr.'s Pool House in Los Angeles. Is that correct? 
correct? That is correct. That is correct. Let me just back up to one of the other three questions you asked me last time, Mark. <laughs> Taj Mahal. One of the remarkable things about that tuba band was the bass player, Bill Rich. Mm-hmm. Billy Rich is, um, of all the bass players, electric bass players in the world, I would rather play with him than anyone. Mm-hmm. He is invented. He's a rock. That song in there, You Ain't No Streetwalker, Baby, yeah. But I Love the Way You Start yeah. Your Stuff. You listen to his lines and the facility and the, uh, he plays within this and how steady he is and faultless. And besides being a wonderful character whom I love as a person, I just have to mention Bill Rich because he's just a great bass player. Well, you ain't no streetwalker, baby. Honey, but I do love the way you strut your stuff. Well, you take the cold out of cold time, baby. And feed me when the time gets rough. And then finally, Barney interjected this, and I'll get my last note here. from the- <laughs> um, This is a new one, the- isn't it, on the podcast? <laughs> the guest-taking notes. The, uh, yeah. the Taj Mahal piano solo. You know, it's a real sore point for me because Taj does go, John Simon at the end. And the problem with that solo was we were all taking, this is a live concert at the Fillmore East. We were all taking long, long solos, you know, 10, 12 minute solos. And my solo started off really soft and really logical and really sensible. And then finally built to the last two minutes or so when it was, you know, I'd lost my mind, and it was just crazy, 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 frantic, high energy. Well, Dave Rubinson, once my colleague at Columbia Records, and at that point, Taj Mahal's producer, decided that he would not use the first 10 minutes and just use the last two minutes. So it starts off at 100%, and goes from there, and there's no <laughs> zero to 100, so it makes no logic at all. No wonder Taj is going, John Simon, because it's been 12 minutes, but, but you know... <laughs> But people are always saying to me, oh, that wonderful solo. I say, oh, my God. But it, but there's a better Taj Mahal, there's a better Taj Mahal piano solo on a song called Stealing that I did on an album yeah. of his. It's really nice. But, John, if by any chance the original mix, un- unedited mix of that exists, why doesn't that get released as a part of a reissue of that album? I'd love to hear oh. the whole 10 minutes. <laughs> well, released. I mean, here's another release story. Steve Forbert. Yeah. Whom you may know. Steve Forbert. <laughs> I got a call from Steve Forbert's manager, who also happened to be the manager of the first record I produced successfully, the Red Herber Ball by the Circle. That manager, Nat Weiss, was the manager of Steve Forbert. And he said, uh, you know, uh, Steve's got a contract here with Epic Columbia Records. And this uh, producer, I'm not going to mention his name, just out of courtesy. He just got an offer to produce Barbara Streisand instead. And uh, he's assured me that his commitment is to Steve. But just in case, are you available? I said, sure. I'd never never heard of Steve, but sure. Then I got the call the next day. that Because the man had said, I'm a man of my word. It was, I'm a man of my word, said this producer. And so the next day, the man of his word turned out not to be a man of his word. And he went with Barbara Streisand. And so this guy called me up and said, would you produce Steve? So um, Steve said, I want to do a recording with no splices, no overdubs, no edits. And I was so happy to hear that because I love that kind of honesty in recording. So there we were in a studio in Nashville with Steve 
playing and singing guitar and his harmonica and singing, an electric guitar player, a piano player, an organ player who also played accordion at times, a drummer, an electric bass player, three horns and three vocalists live yeah, yeah. in a studio. <laughs> Fabulous. And the engineer, Gene Eichelberger, did a beautiful job, a beautiful job with it. And we went and we mixed it, and he did a beautiful mix. It was fabulous. So, so I meet Steve in New York City at the mastering room, and Steve comes in with the newest Rolling Stones album. Uh, I don't remember which one it was. But he puts it in the turnbill and he says, I want my album to sound like this. Ugh. And I said, uh, Steve, uh, that album, as wonderful it is, as it is, was done incrementally for the most part, instrument by instrument, and then squashed with a limiter and a computer so that everything would be in your face at all times and up at maximum volume, and it wouldn't have the transparency that we worked so hard to get in Nashville where you can really feel you're in the studio with the musicians. He said, I don't care. I want it to sound like the Rolling Stones album. So that's the thing that was, re was released. I and Steve is uh, to, for his credit always says he thinks too much, you know, he second guesses himself too much. So I have that original tape, Mark. <laughs> I have that, and I've been talking to well, Steve amazing. over the years saying, Can we release this? Can your fans would love this? And he said, oh, I'll get to it. And I uh, know what I have is Good. a copy. He says he has the original in some vault somewhere in the depths of New Jersey or something. <laughs> That's that question. That's so I think I've answered Martin, all your questions. Martin, have you got a question? Yes. I, well, I was listening to the weight on headphones last night, and it has such a monumental, majestic sound, especially the drums, but, but everything sounds great. It's just five instruments, insanely great, that has a presence and heft that's actually on the tape that most records from 1967 don't. They just don't sound like it. So what was so great about A&R Studio 2? Hmm. Well, first of And who all, was the engineer on that? Was that... Rex? I'm not um, sure whether it was Royce Cicala or... Uh, no, it would have been Royce Cicala. It would have been Shelley Yakis, maybe. Or, yeah. I don't know who it was. One of their staff I think engineers. it was Shelley Yakis, maybe. Yeah. yeah. Now... You know, I am not an engineer. Producers can be uh, engineers or friends or wives or whatever, managers. I am not an engineer. I'm an arranger. As a producer, I'm basically a musical arranger. So I really, you know, people ask me, what microphone did you use on this? And I say, I don't know, it was silver, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but in a sense, there's something about the arrangement of that song that well, allows it, all of those things to stand Kind yeah. of separate, but together at the same time. It's also Levon's voice. Levon's voice had heft to it. Mm -hmm. I love that word, heft. And also was the only, it's different on that album, it was the only song with an acoustic guitar rather than an electric yeah. guitar. Yeah. And so that may have something to do with it. Mm -hmm. Now, when you're talking about that, that uh, mix, you're talking about the original Big Pink mix, right? Not the, not the remix of several years ago? No, the original, but you, you have an issue with the more recent mix, don't you? Yeah, I call them uh, un, the unmix. Because, <laughs> uh, uh, I much mean, no, we, 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 just, we worked so hard to mix that thing just to our own personal taste. That sometimes it would be eight hands on the faders, just because this, this was pre computer mixing, you know, it was yeah. before faders moved by themselves. 
by some magic godlike hand. These were uh, you know, hands on the thing. So the new mix, the unmix, it loses the beautiful balance between the three voices. And it features the drums to a great degree. And it disregards the horns pretty much. And so I don't know what what the motivation was for that, except to... Um, Sell the same record you know, to us again. To the we, same the fans. we five times. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's sort of like, I mean, you know, there is a sort of a parallel to uh, to Trump and Trump's followers. <laughs> 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 the band and the band's devotees and the, yeah, Trump, yeah. And the Trump devotees. <laughs> John, we, we did actually talk about the band quite a lot on a recent episode with Jez Butterworth. So I listened I, to that. I listened oh, to good. that. I heard it. Oh, good. Yeah, and no, it, was, it was really good. So I'm sort of conscious of that, and we, I'm sure we'd like to go down a band wormhole, but I'm going to kind of pull us back a little bit and talk about Janis Joplin. One of the pieces that we're featuring on the homepage has, I think, Sam Andrew of Big Brother and the Holding Company saying, the trouble with John is that he wanted to be a member of the band and they could all <laughs> play immaculately. <laughs> And then suddenly he's having, and then suddenly oh, no. suddenly he's having to work with these maniacs from San Francisco who basically couldn't play. And and uh, take us back to your, I mean, you you famously had a a, a, a slightly touchy relationship with with Big Brother. But how do you look back on that now? Well, well, it wasn't that they couldn't play; it's that they played in a certain style. To say that I wanted to be a member of that band was just. Uh, it was anathema because I, I play in a totally different style. It's, you know, jazz influence and they played in a style that was acid influence. So, uh, <laughs> yes, you know, that's what that yeah. was. I mean, that's, you know, the, I call my book Truth, Lies and Hearsay. And one of the lies that I point in the album is that that album, the Cheap Thrills album was a live album. It was not a live album. It was all done in the studio except for one one of the cuts. And the reason it was done in the studio was uh, we, Albert Grossman, their manager, and I went out to California, to San Francisco, to the uh, ballroom that they were playing in, and sort of auditioned them for the possibility of doing a live album. And even though they were very exciting and they had the audience in their thrall, there were just too many mistakes to make a live album. And uh, on a record, mistakes live forever. So uh, we just said, well, we just can't do it. We'll have to do it in the studio. So we did it both in uh, New York and in L.A. One of my favorite tracks on, on Cheap Thrills is, is essentially just you and Janice on Turtle Blues. Some more great playing for you. You probably <laughs> have an oh, issue no. with Oh, no, oh, no, oh, oh no, oh, no, oh, no. <laughs> you have an That's... issue with that, too. <laughs> it seems I have... You're just pulling up my issues. Uh, <laughs> this is basically a psychotherapy session. John. You need Thank to you. confront these huh. issues. Good. It's we can cheaper. help you have a breakthrough here today. Uh, it's, well, cheap. It's, it's cheaper than psychotherapy, too. Um, <laughs> yeah, not the real cost to your soul. Yeah, but, that's, uh, so- that's, the other, that's the other piano solo that people say, I love that piano solo. Because... This is not this. You know, coincidences in life are so crazy. In that recording studio in L.A., 
I was doing two things at once, two sessions at once. I was a busy guy. In the afternoon, I was doing the electric flag with Buddy Miles and Harvey Brooks and others. And at night, I was doing Janice and her band. And Taj Mahal came in to hear. I had not met Taj. He came into the electric flag session since he knew a bunch of the people there. And on the spot, he, well, not on the spot, a couple days later, he offered me a tour of Europe with his band to play piano. And I took it because I really, uh, I knew about music, I knew about jazz, but I, and I knew the blues intellectually. I knew what you'd teach somebody about the blues at first, you know, how you lower the third to a minor third, you play the seventh a lot, et cetera. But I didn't have it in, in me. It wasn't part of my musical palette that was just in here and in here. So I said, yeah. So another day, Janis Joplin comes into the same session and hears me playing and says, hey, motherfucker. That's what, here's what her affectionate name for me. <laughs> motherfucker. How come you're not playing on my record? You're playing on their record. And I said, well, because you already have a band and this is something else. And I'm sort of temporarily filling in in this band until they reassemble, et cetera. So she says, come on in the studio. We're going to do this song. So we go in and we do uh, Turtle Blues. And uh, as I said, I knew nothing about how to play the blues from my heart at that point. So I played this sort of, uh, I don't know, beginner's version of the blues and, and that song. And that's what people say. Besides that and the solo, the long solo for Taj Mahal. Those are the two things people say, oh, man, I love your piano playing. Well, I'm glad we, glad we, brought, up, I'm glad we brought up both of those on today's podcast, John. I'm glad we got them over with. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I have a question. Now that you've you've all had a chance to ask your you know nerdy band related <laughs> things, <laughs> no, I was wondering to touch on something you spoke about very early on during the recording is when you're producing a band, how do you balance facilitating what they want to put out and doing what you want to do with it? I mean, how much do you push? How much do you give in that process? Well, one thing I've come to realize. I just realized last Thursday was that it's their album. <laughs> <laughs> and you realized this last Thursday? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Better than <laughs> never. That's actually a, a Levon Helm joke. He used to always say that all the time. <laughs> no, it's, 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 it's their album. And before we even get started, we have to sort of agree what the album is going to be and, and make these decisions. Because if they want it to be something that uh, that doesn't work for me, then they should get somebody else. And if I have something in mind for them, which I really shouldn't, I mean, I probably will have, I'll probably in, hear something in their music that I think can be, you know, that I find appealing that I will try to bring out in the recording. So that's, that's the way that works. Does that answer your question? <laughs> yeah. Is it something you ever struggled with? Like not putting your voice in it too much or wanting to? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, if they, if they really go astray someplace, crazy. But I mean, like I said, you have to agree in the first place. And, yeah, and, yeah. and that's up to, it has to be a good match. But was the band your best match as a producer in a band? Best match I ever had was John Hartford. Oh, yeah. Oh. Yeah, General, the, the, the album was uh, with uh, Dave Holland on bass and yeah. Norman Blake on guitar. 
And that was it, just the three of them and, and me in this in the control room. You told me this great story, John, when I was interviewing <laughs> you for Small Town. So you, were, you were driving along Tinker Street right. with John Hartford, and he said he was looking for a bass player. And you saw Dave Holland pulling his double bass along the street. No, it was his laundry. It was his laundry. He was his <laughs> laundry. <laughs> okay. yeah. Well, you finished the story. <laughs> Yeah, he says, I need a bass player. I said, well, there goes one walking at the front of our car <laughs> right me. now, carrying his laundry to the laundromat. And he said, who's that? And I said, Dave Holland. He just got finished playing with Miles Davis. That's a pretty good credential. Yeah. Rolled down the window. Then, hey, Dave, you want to play here with John Harper? He says, yeah, what kind of music is it? I said, it's bluegrass. And he said, what's bluegrass? And I said, well, it's like jazz from Appalachia. And he said, okay. <laughs> and so they ended up playing together the end of John Hartford's life. Uh, he went on. And it was it's just great. Only just only great. in Woodstock, really. Only in Woodstock. And it's I wanted Woodstock. to just ask you, because you, you know, Albert Grossman, Peter Yarrow, Barry Feinstein, etc. These characters, in a sense, kind of, and Howard Alk, they pulled you up to to Woodstock, and Martin's showing us something there. Yeah, you are what you, you eat. You are what you eat. Perfect. Right. Yes, the soundtrack album. Actually, I like your painting for Freak Out. John, I thought that was my favourite track. Although my name is Jack is on this, which still sounds great. Whoa, boy, that's big a hit for man for man, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, big hit. Um, yeah. Also, it has the band playing behind Tiny Tim. Mm-hmm. That was before I got hooked up with the band. This oh, right. this was the project that I walked into in the middle of this project. Yeah, right. Yeah, and, and my and first I think- Woodstock project. So you met the band, the first time you met them was up there, wasn't it? And I think it was, it was either your birthday or Howard Elk's birthday and they serenaded you. And before you knew it, you, you were going around to Big Pink and hearing what they'd been doing there. Is that roughly right? That's roughly right, Bonnie. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> a, a it was, it was very, it. very close. Barney's an excellent wood. Doesn't always story. happen. <laughs> yeah. But so you went to, I mean, you know, you're one of the few who actually went to that pink house before anyone knew who the band were mm-hmm. and heard some mm-hmm. of these songs. Right. It was uh, Howard Auk's birthday. And I got to say, Barney, your, your accuracy is wonderful because you've actually walked the streets of Woodstock several times and lived in the houses of Woodstock too. <laughs> yeah. 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 So what happened was Robbie call me. I went back to New York City after we did this You Are and What You Eat project and Robbie called me in New York and said that they were thinking of making a record and as a band since they were Bob Dylan's backup band, but Bob had had his motorcycle accident and they were holed up in this house called Big Pink. So he invited me up to listen and I think I, he didn't let me hear anything until the second or third trip up there. Robbie being a very canny individual. So I went up there this final time. And Levon had just arrived on the scene too. Levon was not part of the basement tapes. People, you know, I've heard it, you know, reported Levon Helm in the basement tapes, but that's just not true. He wasn't even there. He was, he had taken a sabbatical from the music business and was working on some oil rig off the coast of Louisiana. So Levon uh, was there the day before, and then I got there the next day and uh, they took us down to the, Robbie and Richard and Rick and Garbeth took us down to the basement and we listened to some of these songs for the first time, and uh, they were special. They were unique. The, a lot of them came, the, their uniqueness, I think, might have come through Dylan and then through Robbie, because both Robbie and 
Dylan were adventurous and uh, outward looking in their musical purview. Whereas Rick and Richard, I don't think of them much that much in that way. So the songs that I heard were not standard rock and roll songs at all. The lyrics, of course, were written by, were written by Dylan and for the most part. And Robbie told me that Bob would be upstairs with a typewriter on the coffee table, typing out lyrics like crazy, and then they'd go downstairs and make up a song about them. So that's what I heard. People say, well, what did you do to them? What, did you, what was your contribution? Well, I would hear them, and this is an answer to Jasper's question a little bit, how, how we uh, sort of collaborated and how our sensibilities came together to make some new thing. If you listen to, for instance, Tears of Rage on the Basement Tapes, you'll hear one thing. And if you listen to Tears of Rage as the opening song on Big Pink, you hear quite another thing. And most of that is happened. That all happened after I was involved in it. It, they, it was a finished thing as far as they were concerned before I got involved in it. So that's what happens when you stir the pot a little bit and everyone, more people's ideas get stuck in there. Like Albert and Bearsville, it's somewhere I, I read that the very first it took a while to get that that studio right, didn't it? But the, the, the very first session was a session you did with John Hall to demo the song Dancing in the Moonlight. And officially that was the very first session ever done there. Is that does that sound right that's, to you? Once again, that's roughly accurate. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, that's um, pretty good was, to know. We had a band, uh, John Hall, myself, Harvey Brooks, Paul Harris, and I think Wells Kelly was still the drummer at that point. And John Gardner, who was Albert Grossman's first engineer there, the guy who helped Albert set up the studio from an engineering point of view, said to me, do you want to come in the studio and be our test case, our guinea pigs? So we just went in one night and then we just, you know, threw microphones up and we did, we just recorded the songs that we were working on for our live show, one of which was Dancing in the Moonlight, which later on became a hit for Buffalongo, and which was uh, the name of that band, which uh, I think was included Wells Kelly's brother. This is as I understood it. I mean, these things are so, you know, it's a, it's a spider web of connections. Your band with uh, John Hall was before Orleans? Yeah. Oh, way before Orleans. Yeah, Orleans, way before yeah. Orleans. So, so did, did, did it ever come to anything, that band? Or well, we opened for Janis Joplin and Big Brother at, uh, in, <laughs> in White Plains, New York. <laughs> and a few more things, but no, it didn't. It, 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 we all got in, in, in a different projects. Oh, and we also we opened for John McLaughlin in Mahavishnu in New York City, and, and Judy <laughs> Collins. That's a match and a half. <laughs> oh boy, yeah. So yeah, it didn't go very far. We all went off on our other projects. Yeah. We get it on most every night, and when that. story that you told Albert Grossman the dimensions of the studio you, used, you loved in New York and he went and built it three times bigger because he <laughs> yeah, wanted right. everything three. I love that because for example I'm Martin and I worked at Muscle Shoals and the fame studios they measured 
the RCA studio in Nashville and just reproduced it because the only studios is new. You know, I love this idea mm-hmm. of kind of matching studios <laughs> like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Was it, I, I I did a little recording in Muscle Shoals. Was it the studio? I don't know if it was fame. Was there Muscle Shoals Sound? Muscle Shoals yeah, Sound. Yeah, yeah. Studio where yes. the bathroom was. The bathroom was behind the drum set. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah. yeah. we we went to the second Muscle Shoals Sound, which is the one on on the river, which yeah. is the, the later mm. one, the big one, the old armory. Can we talk about the band's second album? I know Barney's kind of snarling about this sort of band. <laughs> not, no, not, it's my favorite record too, Mark. It, it, it's it's. I mean, that was recorded in a room which wasn't a studio. Was it what an eight track brought in to to record there? In a pretty small room, and yet it's a fantastic sounding record. I mean, just sonically, it's it's, it's yeah, amazing. You know, it wasn't that small. The room had a very high ceiling. Oh, right, right, right. And, and uh, it wasn't that small at all. I mean, dimensions it was bigger than maybe Big Pink, bigger than the basement of Big Pink. Yeah, yeah, yeah bigger than the basement yeah. of Big Pink. But exactly. it was it was a, a decent sized room, sure. And we had all the equipment brought in because. We wanted to really do things at our leisure. Now, you have to know that Robbie Robertson was the leader of the band at this yeah. point. And even though it had been Levon and the Hawks, Levon Levon left, Robbie sort of assumed control. And that was that remained the case for the entire life of the band. So it was Robbie's idea, I'm sure, to rent a house and have a studio that we could control ourselves. And I mean, wait for engineers and uh, be on their timetable. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, you have to get out of here. You have three hours to record because there's going to be a Coca-Cola jingle coming in after you. That, nothing like that would ever happen. So we got Capitol Records to provide us with uh, huge speakers that hung from the ceiling and a mixing board and an 8-track machine and all this outrigger equipment that I was familiar with and uh, a big EMT echo chamber, yeah, yeah. they called it. It was, uh, you know, it was about four feet high and six feet long and two feet thick. But I didn't know that. As I said, I was not an engineer. One of the things Robbie said was, well, when we do this, you'll teach me everything uh, you know about engineering, which for me took about three minutes. (laughs) (laughs) And we just learned by experimentation. We would uh, get a bunch of uh, microphones. And uh, because the band was successful at this point, and Albert Grossman was a good bargainer and negotiator, we got a bunch of free equipment from all different places, including free microphones to use. And so we tried different microphones and different instruments to see what we liked and different microphone placement. So we were able to take our time a lot more with the sound, which is one of the reasons why people think that the second album sounds better than the first. Well, it, it is. It's more of a piece. It's yeah. more of a piece than the first. Album. Yeah. But I mean, yeah. you're saying you're not an engineer, but the drum sound is yes. fantastic on that record. I mean, and drum sounds are notoriously the hardest thing to, for most engineers to get. And you know, up on Cripple Creek and King Harvest and things like that. It's, it's the drum. I mean, aside from look, he's a fabulous drummer, and he always got a good noise out of his kit. That's that's for sure. But it's for a sort of home recording, which you know, all intents and purposes, it was. It's amazing. I wouldn't call it a home recording. We had professional equipment. We were in a nice house. <laughs> okay, okay. And, you know, it's just, it's just that we took our time. You know, we yeah. tried things. The drum stuff. Oh, that sounds good. Let's keep that. Well, that sounds good. Let's keep that. And, you know, just going very slowly. How long did it take to record out of, out of interest? Oh, uh, well, we were there. We booked the house for two months. The first month, Capitol didn't have all the equipment there. Mm-hmm. So we were just mostly rehearsing. And then we had to do... Uh, Two months' work in one month before they were booked to play up at Winterland, I think it was, someplace in San Francisco. Mm, when, so yeah, we had to right. really, you know, hustle. 
So, you know, it's 30 days, 10 songs, however many songs that were divided, 33 days a song. Although we didn't even finish it, we had to go to a studio in New York City to do a couple of those songs, uh, Whispering Pines and Jemima Surrender, I think, right. were done in New York City. It's not obvious that they're not recorded in the, in the same moment as the others. Right, well, they were no, all, all mixed at the same time. But I'm glad. Yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. glad. It's ironic in a way, I'm sorry to move the story forward abruptly, but it's ironic that seven years later, you go back to Southern California at Robbie's request to be the, the musical director on The Last Waltz. And you, hadn't, you didn't really work with the band in, in any meaningful sense in the intervening years, but he calls you up and says, we're doing this show. Were you surprised to hear from him at that point, or had you been in pretty close contact? I was surprised. I was surprised to hear from anyone with the band because uh, one of my beefs was I hadn't been receiving royalties. <laughs> exactly. I was glad to hear from anyone. Yes. And uh, that brings a whole other issue. Which sure. Is, uh, we'll have to do, an- we'll do another episode I'm- on that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll go a little, another psychoanalysis. <laughs> uh, no, I was, you know... What essentially, I was called to be the musical director, which, uh, what was that? Well, it was going to be a movie made, and so Martin Scorsese was going to be the film director, and Robbie was going to be uh, to make a concert happen. It was up to me to make sure all the elements were musically uh, okay, you know. So we had uh, rehearsals done in southern L.A. in their, in their studio in, near Malibu. We had two acts come in, two performers, whatever you call them, acts, artists, every day, one in the morning, one in the afternoon, and they would say what they wanted to do, and we'd agree on the songs that they wanted to do, and then I would have to teach the guys in the band how to play some of these songs, because some of them were more than than they were accustomed to or had tricky parts to them, you know. So there was that. And then we finally got everybody up to the ballroom. The night before, it was the dress rehearsal, for an audience of one, just me, and that was fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, then the next, the next night was the show, and all kinds of things went crazy and wrong at the show too. But uh, it was a memorable. It was, you know, it was great. It was just great. An extraordinary thing to have been involved in. I mean, it was really, truly the great and the good of like American rock and blues, wasn't it? I mean, it must have been extraordinary to be at Shangri La with these legendary figures passing in and out of of the studio. Yeah, I mean yeah. bizarre. Sure. Um <laughs> and an amazing film. Well we were all we were all high as could be, Barney. So you know it was, it was, that was reality. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did know that. I think okay. we all knew that. I mean one of the standout moments in the film, and this is our attempt to this is the segue of the week, one of the standout moments for me, I don't know about Mark and Martin and yourself. But uh, Van Morrison doing Caravan, because we're going to talk in a, in a moment about the week's audio interview. I just wanted to ask you, because you lived up in Woodstock at the same time that Van was living up there, inspired by the band, of course. Did you have any, any encounters with, with the Belfast Gypsy? Sure, sure. I, I, Van was a... I love Van. You know, we, uh, 
I don't know if he would, he would probably remember my name, but I was going to say, I don't know if he remember my name, but you know, there was talk of maybe my working with Van on his next album that didn't work out. Okay. Uh, but uh, he lived in a, one of the houses that um, Garth and Richard had lived in earlier. He took over and, that house, didn't he? Yeah. 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 He lived there. And, you know, I'd see him around like that. We talk and, but you know, we didn't make any, make any music together. Woodstock was a, community as well as being a musical studio you know so you yes. see people and you see people in the grocery store the library the post office all the time it's one of the great ideas is like you just you sort of see dylan in the in the kind of vegetable aisle and the in the in the market and it's a great part of the woodstock story <laughs> Mark, would you want to just tell us a little bit about about this audio? Yeah, absolutely. Um, this is John Tobler interviewing Van Morrison on 20th of February 1979. I managed to actually kind of pinpoint the precise date. He had just played that night his very first show in Ulster in Northern Ireland since the 1960s, since them and other stuff he did back back then. And he's really cheerful. I mean, this is a man who's got a reputation as being a deeply cantankerous interviewee. And he's very jolly. I think this was for Zigzag magazine. And that's possibly why he was so kind of good natured, because it wasn't for like the mainstream music press. He knew it was for a magazine, which was really about the music in a sort of big way. And he talks about his, his most recent album's Wavelength, which he's very, very pleased with. He's changed bands. He's got a different road, road band at this, this point in time. He talks about his business struggles being managed by Harvey Goldsmith, which is a curiosity for English rock hacks. And then at this point, he's managed by Bill Graham, which he is very, very comfortable with his relationship because he says, Bill goes back as far as I do. You know, we've both got the same history. We can talk about everything, know what we're talking about. He talks about living in America, which he's still doing, though he's sort of moving back and forth, being Irish in America. Interestingly, he's he was brought up a Jehovah's Witness, which I didn't know. It comes up in this mm-hmm. in this thing. So in a way, he's out of the Protestant Catholic sort of stresses of, of Northern Ireland. He talks about leaving Northern Ireland for London. And he talks about Wavelength in his previous albums. And we'll listen to this clip. He's talking about Astral Weeks, which he obviously hugely fondly regards as one of one of the best records in his his estimation that he had made. So let's have a listen to this. I definitely was aware that it, that it was like a heavy album. The thing was, though, that I was, at that particular time, I think it was really a very creative period. There was something about that period that was like sort of highly charged creatively. You know, it was like first time that I'd lived in America and I was living in New York and I was living in the West Village and I, you know, a lot of the songs were, you know, sort of from here, you know, Bud Island and all that, but I wrote the album in America, you know, and the energy of being in New York at the time and the whole thing, it was, um, you know, it was like a creative period. At the same time, I went through like a depression just before that album. And that was when I, the, during the album was sort of when I came out of the depression. Could you find me? Or would you kiss my eyes? 
very interesting. I mean, he's very proud of what he does. He's not one of these, like a lot of artists, look back at their old records and say, oh, that was then, you know, I just want to talk about the new records and stuff. He doesn't. He's got a very interesting perspective on his early solo albums, the Warners sort of stuff. John, what did you think of, of Astral Weeks as a matter of interest? Oh, I loved I loved yeah. Astral Weeks, the album pre- preceding it as well. Blowing um, your mind. No, no, no. Moon Dance. Moon, what, what, moon what, what, Dance was the one. Moon Dance was, yeah. Moon Dance yeah, came off, came off. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, whatever. Weeks. Yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe it was Astral Weeks, the one with uh, a. The horns do that. Do 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 You've got a memory for horn lines, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Van was very cheerful when we were doing Caravan at the Last Waltz. He was not. Morosa said he was happy as could be there. His father was there was at the last Waltz concert. Yeah, oh. I remember meeting his meeting his dad. I also have to correct one one mistake that the uh, police have just told me I have to change, which is not. I don't mean the band. I mean the law enforcement people. <laughs> I, I said that we were. I said we were as high as could be when we were in uh, Malibu rehearsing. We weren't as high as we could be. If we were as high as we could be, we'd be dead. We were. Uh, <laughs> And, we were actually just and a some little, of them are sadly some of them just are. A, yeah we were just a little bit happy I'll put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> nice correction yeah. Mark what's yeah the no second I mean clip? before we get to that I mean he took well he talks about the he loves playing live but he finds it very hard to reproduce his music on stage because the subtleties mm-hmm. get lost the volume is too high and so on and so forth but he talks very fondly about hard nose the highway and it's too late to stop now but yeah he talks about production and uh, yes he's worked with other producers but he regards himself primarily as his producer and he sees whoever else is in the producer's chair as the guy who enables certain things which is not a million miles away from the way you regard yourself as a producer, John. I think that's, that's quite interesting. So let's listen to this clip. This is him about producing himself. I come from the old school of production, you know, from like the Jerry Wexler, Burt Burns school of production is where you walk in a room and you have the band play the arrangement and you do the live track. And that is what kind of producer I am. Like the other stuff, since they got bigger machines, 16 and 24 and all that, I'm not really into that. So when I get someone else to work with me, I get them for the purpose of working with that. Everything else I can take care of myself. Which is, I think, really keys in exactly what you've been talking about. John, about your approach. Did you find that when studios got fancier, 16-track, 24-track, that you found it a less enjoyable experience? Mm-hmm. I did, yeah. Some of the very first songs we did on the Big Pink album may have even been two four-track machines. Yeah. Ping-ponging back and forth. And then we then we got to eight-track toward the end. I just remembered what song it is, the Van Morrison's on the coast. That, 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 you know, do-do. When that foghorn blows. Oh, oh into, into, the blows, into, into the mystic. Into the mystic. Oh. That's it. <laughs> yeah, great one. All right. That is really a Woodstock album, Moondance. He put that band together up there. 
phenomenal group. Yeah. And of course, he he worked, he did that amazing track on the band's Cahoots album with Richard oh, Manuel. Yes. They, were, they were terrible, rowdy buddy, drinking buddies, weren't they, Rich yeah. and Van? Oh, you probably yeah. experienced that. <laughs> well, I, I was not in town that much for that, but I love that uh, duet, the way they sing to each other. Oh, it's fabulous, yeah. He calls him Belfast Cowboy. Belfast Cowboy, that's <laughs> yeah. it, yeah, yeah. But it's, it's, it's a really interesting interview. I, I was slightly dreading it because I have heard and read some very difficult interviews with the guy. And this is actually really nice that John Todd is a good interviewer and this, that, that they're, they're, they're talking about, they, they're both talking about the same thing rather than cross purposes. And like I said, he sounds, he sounds very amiable and it, it's, it's well worth a listen. So that's, we'll play one clip at the end, which is about what he listens to, the sort of music he likes to listen to. Great. Well, so the next item on the agenda, I mean, I'm hoping also that you may have something to say about this person, which is Lillian Roxon is our featured writer on the RBP homepage this week. And one of the pieces we're featuring is the obituary she wrote for Janis Joplin. And we just thought that would tie in quite nicely. Do you remember that name, Lillian Roxon? I do, I do. She wrote about me and included some adjectives uh, that were not uncomplimentary. (laughs) 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 Well, I I really like Lillian Roxon. I think, I don't know. I mean, she died way too young, but I don't know how she got so much so right and so Mm -hmm. poetically so close to the time the music was being made. She she makes great calls on on the band, for you, um, yeah. Dylan, pretty much everyone. She's got this kind of dead-on certitude of how important they will seem to be in the future and what they're like now. David Bowie, uh, for example, she was very early on yeah. the case with yeah, Bowie. Yeah, she's kind of, she was had real ears, just incredible yes. ears, I think. And very stylish writer, really stylish no, no, writer. Incredibly stylish writer. She also, I mean, she she became something of a sort of New York fixture, you know, hanging out at Max's Kansas City, all of that sort of stuff. She was a great party goer. Clearly, she kind of knew her way around a bottle of booze and so on and so forth. You know, and I was so pleased to get permission to use the stuff from her family, even though a lot of people quote her encyclopedia as being a kind of an important item. As a journalist, she's been somewhat forgotten, I think, and finding her stuff, it's mostly for the New York Sunday News or the Sydney Morning Herald. She came to Australia with her parents from Europe in 1937, escaping fascism, their Jewish family. Mm-hmm. And then in 62, she moved to New York and became the Sydney Morning Herald's New York correspondent, or one of their two correspondents in New York. And she eventually managed to shove the other correspondent out of the way because he was clearly a pain in the neck. And yeah, and she, she had this marvellous career and died far too young. In 1973, she died of asthma, had a severe asthma attack. We've spoken to various people who who knew her and that she was very, very loved as, as, as a person. She really was deeply loved by, yeah. by everyone on, on that scene, the Max's scene, you know, yeah. Lenny Kay, all the music critics. She was like the kind of mother hen, really, yeah. Of, yeah. Of, the de- of the demos. I, th- I was so great when you got her stuff on, on RBP, That's Mark. Great. I was really She's pleased. so important. So, I mean, in fact, the lo- one of the other pieces is a piece about Bette Midler, one of the earliest pieces written about Bette Midler, and it's very much from within that New York scene. It's a real New York scene piece. She was great. She was also a very early documentary of the women's movement in New York. Came aware of it as, as a p- proper political grouping with people like Gloria Steinem and so on and so forth. And and she wrote about that quite, quite extensively. So, you know, she, she was 
right on also, which we is good news. John, did you pay attention to the music press in that era? I mean, when Lillian Roxon and others were writing, let's just say like the early 70s, did you guys read The Village Voice? Did you read Circus? Did you read Rolling Stone? Hmm. Yeah. Not avidly. I don't. I never read the circus. I did read Rolling Stone. It was just a good paper for every reason. Yeah. But also, I read Variety and uh, Billboard, Cash, Billboard, like cash, cash Box, box. Cash, yeah. cash yeah. Box, and Billboard. Yeah. yeah. For, you know, for practical reasons and yes. Downbeat and uh, you know other, but. No, yes. The answer is no, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, I mean, anyone who's listening, please do look at Lillian Rocks and stuff on Rocks Back Pages, which we'll be continuing to add in, in coming months and years. She really is one of the legends of music journalism. It's come to that point in the show where, we, where we're saying goodbye to people, and most notably this week we're saying goodbye to Jerry Marsden of Jerry and the Pacemakers, who at one moment looked like they were almost going to be as big a Mersey Beat sensation as the Beatles were. And we have a couple of pieces, including one from early 63, where Jerry is being into interviewed by June Harris with John Lennon. They're sitting in a London hotel room talking about Mersey Bee. It's fascinating, actually. So interesting. Mark, Martin, mm-hmm. <laughs> what, do, what did Jerry and the Pacemakers mean to you guys? Martin. <laughs> it's not a hot potato. It's not a hot potato. You can just hand around. All I can think of at the moment is, was their name... A, an athletics reference that later became a heart monitor reference. I, mean, actually, I never thought Jerry and the Pacemakers. Well, what's that even about? Well, what? when you when you think Pace about a race, no, no, the four minute mile, they'd have grown up with yes, that they'd, being broken. They'd have that, heard, yes. they'd have heard about pacemakers. So possibly, yes. you know, so, four so minute mile was broken. Is... Four minute mile was broken just down the road from where I am right now. Well, that, that, <laughs> that's wow. just fantastic, Jasper. I'm so pleased. So Roger Bannister um, gave uh, gave the name to Jerry and the Pacemakers. I, I think I quite I kind of like the Mersey Beat stuff that they did. I think I preferred the Searchers as a kid. Yeah, they did uh, every time you walk in the room the Jackie DeShannon song. I'd lump them, I think, with Freddie and the Dreamers. Yeah, pretty they much. They had slightly novelty-ish. Yeah, exactly. Like the Freddie and the Dreamers I didn't like, didn't you know, record Rogers and Hammerstein's "You'll Never Walk you'll Alone." You'll never walk alone, of course. Which is slightly mad, isn't it? It's fascinating reading this piece, the second piece about Jerry and the Placemakers. This interview from '97 with Marsden. And he says that George Martin, who was producing them, and Brian Epstein, who was managing them, sounds familiar. But both were, were, were very dubious about, about the Jerry and the Pacemakers recording You'll Never Walk Alone. And, and Jerry really had to, ins- or at least that's his version of it, he really had to insist on it. And of course, I mean, he will go down in you know yes, football yeah. history for all eternity. Yes. Well, this may be a recording reference. that version. You might have to explain this to John. Yeah. <laughs> well, John. I mean, John, I'm interested in, in what your perspective was on these, those Brit- on the British invasion, the Merseybeat groups, um, as, as you were already working for Columbia at that point. How do you remember the British invasion in, in the US? Gee, I think in terms of the girls, <laughs> because the girls were all just crazy about the Beatles. Yes. Here's what, what would happen. The, the capital, EMI was capital in uh, the States, and capital had the Beatles, and None of the record company executives knew why the Beatles were a success. They just didn't have a clue and why all the girls went crazy for them. And that meant record sales. And they all wanted record sales. So every record company wanted 
their Beatles. They wanted their four lads from Liverpool. And so there was a lot of money in the record industry at that point. And so at Columbia, they were signing all these bands. You know, they were success at the high school dances. The girls screamed for them at the local high school dances. And they had the funny costumes and the haircuts. And and they just bought brand new electric guitars. So um, they were, you know, the executives of the other companies didn't know what to do with them. They just signed them. They give him a million dollar signing bonus and throw him in a studio with me. <laughs> and, and so, and they said, you know, make Beatles out of these people. And um, which you did with which uh, you the did circle. with the circle, yeah. To some well, degree. that was that was a yeah that was a little bit different because uh, they came a different. They didn't come with a million dollars signing. Okay. <laughs> they came out of another kind of way. But there were a lot of groups that came in that that, that way that just uh, you've forgotten their names and uh, it's just as well they may have forgotten their names themselves. So that that's <laughs> so the answer to your question was what did the Americans think about the British invasion? I think the answer is confused <laughs> and and jealous because the, 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 the girls jealous too yeah the, yeah basically the, the girls were paying too much attention. And it also brought Blimey's. it brought the blues it brought the whole blues idiom back to the fore in America too. Because a lot of these bands were, were, you know, had listened to yeah. blues music that had sort of gone out of favor in this country, you know. Yeah. I mean, it was one thing, you know, if you listen to Lenny Kay's Nuggets compilation from way back, which is about American garage rock, essentially, you know, and that's a lot of bands trying to be a British rock and roll band. A lot of those, 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 those mid sixties, what now actually quite revered sort of garage punk bands were trying to be British and exactly the way sort of the, the way you describe, you know? Yeah. Yeah. We're also saying goodbye to Jeff Stevens, a very different sort of British invader. Do you remember that record Winchester Cathedral, which got to number oh, one? Yeah. Oh, actually, yes. God, God, ghastly, awful, but it oh, actually yes. got to the top of, of the charts in America. The new vaudeville band? The new vaudeville yeah. band. Right. So, um, Just awful. Yes. Just I'll tell you a story about that. <laughs> well, I, 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 don't, I don't, never had occasion to tell this story before. Do you know the name Bruce Lundvall? Yes, yes. of course, of course, yeah. Right. yeah. Capital Blue Note and yeah. Right, he became, he, and before that he was president of the And he's mentioned in your book, isn't he? He gets real yeah. props in your book. I, I love Bruce. Before he was president of any company, he was about two or three years older than I was and a little bit ahead of me. He was like in the sales department. He was some kind of a junior sales executive. Winchester Cathedral comes out and somebody at Columbia says, we should cover that record so that we can get some of the sales money from that record. Who can we get to do it? Bruce says, I'll do it. So he recorded his version singing of Winchester Cathedral under the name Smooth Lundvall. He, <laughs> he sang it sort of like Vaughn Monroe. You know, if you, if they, you go back to, you know, very That's smooth. That came very naturally to you. <laughs> this is the guy who later became one of the biggest record executives in the world. Yeah, sure. Actually, I do have another, I, at the risk of extending this podcast to unfeasible limits, Jasper Peters Brown. Back. There's another footnote <laughs> to this uh, new Vaudeville band story, which is that Peter Grant, the infamous manager of Led Zeppelin, pre-Led Zeppelin, was, was basically given the new Vaudeville band to manage by Mickey Most. 
And he mm-hmm. then hired the equally infamous Richard Cole to be their road manager. Really? <laughs> yeah. And I remember Rich telling the story that he was driving Keith Moon around and he put on like a tape or something of Winchester Cathedral and, and Keith Moon turned to him and went, what's this fucking old shit? It <laughs> <laughs> then climbed to number two the following week I think, <laughs> and then number one in America. I remember actively hating that record when I was a child. Yeah, it's actively a, hating it. It is actively hating it. Winchester Cathedral So we should really move on. So we, we were saying goodbye to someone very, very different. We're a completely different world from Jerry Marsden and Jeff Stevens. We're saying goodbye to a maverick hip-hop artist called MF Doom, who's a real, like, cult hero among fans of hip-hop. And we've got a piece by Paul Lass, a great interview, when Doom is living in London. And it's, just, it's a fascinating interview. Jasper, can you tell us a little bit about MF Doom? Sure. I mean, really, we should do a whole episode on him at some point. He's really important yeah. guy and really interesting story. I mean, really? born Daniel Dumoulin. He was actually born in London, which is kind of interesting. And then he wasn't allowed back into the US, having lived there for basically his entire life. After going on a world tour, he just wasn't let back in following that, which is a really right. tragic element of of what he, you know, he had to go through an awful lot of stuff. You know, prior to being MF Doom, he was Zev Love X, part of KMD. Yes. It was him and his younger brother. KMD first stood for causing much damage, and then they changed it to a positive cause in a much damaged society, which I think is actually fantastic as a, you know, as a concept for his early 90s hip hop. And they really were trying to comment on everything that was going on. And then tragically, his younger brother gets killed in a car accident in 1994. And there's a great interview with him that I was reading the other day where he talks about how he was influenced by KRS-One's reaction to Scott LaRock's death and how that kind of inspired him to persevere. So he actually finished off their second album but then that didn't get released because Elektra dropped them because they were worried about causing controversy with the album cover. So it was really this blow after blow. And he then disappeared for three years and re-emerged in 97 as MF Doom, this villain alter ego based on the Marvel comic book character Doctor Doom. And it's a really fascinating commentary on the idea of the rap persona. And he just ratcheted up one one notch further and became this mask-wearing persona, Metal Face Doom. I'm sort of mortified that I've been unaware of this guy. I do like, as you know, I, I, I like my hip-hop to an extent, but the outpouring from some of our writers on Facebook, people like Stevie Chick, who's one of our writers, Neil Kulkarni, they really thought this guy was fantastic. So I'm going to have to I have to go back. And, oh, and yeah. Check, I mean, I would, I would go right back to the KMD stuff. Yeah. Two albums, Mr. Hood and Black Bastards, both of which have some really great moments, really upbeat sampling. I mean, one of the first tracks they did sampled Aretha's, the piano on Aretha's Respect, which is just a great sample. It's very, very good stuff. And then the really, the what people consider to be like his masterpiece is the album that he did with Mad Lib called Mad Villainy. Yeah. And that's just a phenomenal album. So if, if anybody hasn't, I mean, he, he has this incredible ability to rhyme a whole setup line with every syllable in the punchline 
and he assembles words in a way that is just amazing. Oh, well, I, mean, I came in with, with, with Mad Villainy, and, and it's the only one I know really well. But it, it is an album that can be enjoyed musically as much as, uh, yeah. as lyrically and rhythmically and so forth. It it's, it's really stands up incredibly well, That's good. I, I think, as a hip-hop album. Very sad, young, you know, he was only 49, and he yeah. died actually three months ago, you know, three months to the day yeah, before his death Why didn't we know that he had died? Does, well, I'm actually not sure. I, 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 don't, I don't know what the reason for that is. I don't is, mean we really, particularly, but no, no, but no but, one seemed to Yeah, know. it wasn't announced until New Year's Eve, sort of a final, final fuck you from 2020. But, you know, very sad that he's... That he's I mean, his interviews, it's worth saying his interviews, uh, this, this one that we're running by, by Paul Lester is, is, is just in itself really entertaining and articulate and amazing and you sent another one from the wire he was a it was a really interesting coach. Oh, yeah really really interesting i mean he also rapped under various other alter egos victor yeah. vaughan king Ghidorah. you know he had all these personae that he was able to you know almost meta he would comment on his own yes. personas from his other is he you know a real artist really yeah. really great so hope, hope we can add some more pieces on him Dripping off the beat, kinda dripping off the meat grinder. Heat liner, pimping, stripping, soft, sweet minor. China was a neat sign of trouble with the script digits. Double dip, bubble lick, subtle list, midget. Borderline, schizo, sort of fine, tits, dough, quarter wine, order grind, quarter to nine, let's go. Gosh, we really are going over time. But Mark, tell us, please, please, about your favourite articles that you've seen come into the library over the last week or so. Well, the last week or so, because it includes, in fact, the, the, from the week before Christmas. Very quickly, I'll sort of dash through this as fast as I can. First one's really interesting because I read Joel Selvin's book about Altamont again the other day. And he refers to this event, this is Philip Elwood for the San Francisco Examiner, 20th of May, 1968, about the Santa Clara Pop Festival, which is one of the lesser pop festivals in California. And the, the Hells Angels were involved. And he says, yesterday's involvement of the Hells Angels as a freeloading, swaggering stage guard treated as honoured guests and announced as our guardians was wholly uncalled for and an obvious concession to intimidation. I mean, it's just really interesting. It's, you know, it's just under a year before Altamont. And, yeah, chilly. you know, uh, and there, there it is. Paul McCartney to Roy Carr, NME 1978. Oh, by the way, John, do chip in with any comments if anything sort of like perks you up or otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> There's no room. <laughs> <laughs> Paul McCartney about the whole sort of issue of, you know, being a solo artist and so on and so forth. Then you get start getting the journalists saying, it's 10 years since former Beatle Paul McCartney has been back to the Beatles stage and Beatle Beatle. And is it going to be as good as the Beatle Beatles? And will they play Beatle Beatles songs? Or is it going to be? So this is a guy who's really fed up, pretty fed up with his past at that point. Special Terry Hall to Don Snowden, LA Times, 1980. How can we be a Scar revival band in America when America never had Scar to revive? Which is actually a very, very good point. He says, I'm thinking about tonight's show. What happens on Two-Tone tomorrow happens on Two-Tone tomorrow. I think I'll skip the Paul Weller quote I was vaguely looking at. Oh, good. This is Philip Elwood again, actually. He's writing about Springsteen suddenly getting massive with Born in the USA. This is from the Examiner on 21st of October, 84. And he refers back to when he first saw Bruce Springsteen. This is 1970. He says, amid the accumulated muck of two days of rain on Tuesday night, January the 13th at the Matrix, a cosy club in Fillmore, just north of Union, a band called Steel Mill from Asbury Park, New Jersey, was replacing Boz Skaggs, who had cancelled his week-long engagement at the club that afternoon. 
The lead guitarist and singer and composer for Steel Mill was someone named Bruce Springsteen. He and his group were in the midst of an unproductive West Coast tour. The examiner critic, him, Elwood, who had gone to review Skaggs, described himself as never being so overwhelmed by totally unknown talent, continuing by saying, Springsteen comments and lurches about, providing the prime charge for the group, and further noting that he is a most impressive composer. That's that's just... That's fantastic. That's just really interesting. So what year was that again, Mark? This piece is 84. He's looking yeah, back... Yeah, but he was uh, looking back to 1970, uh, the gig. 1970, yeah, 70, right. Uh, and I've got that piece, which I'm going to post at some stage, the review oh, of Steel Mill. Nineteen ninety six, Kenneke. We love Kenneke. So Lauren Laverne is just you know part of the English great and good. Kenneke's Emmy Kate to Stephen Dalton says, "We're not thick as fucking pig shit. We don't have a nanny on board, and we can write in something other than crayon." <laughs> and Lauren Laverne says, "Sorry about we, the language." <laughs> Lauren Laverne says, "We always said we wanted to be pop stars, and everybody said, oh, that's so ironic and cool and kitsch.' Then we went, look, we're actually going to be pop stars,' and they all went, sell out.' <laughs> which, is, which is true. Um, <laughs> that is the British way, isn't it, yeah. really? Yeah. Uh, there's a wonderful Caroline Sullivan interview with Neil Hannon from the Divine Comedy. He kind of comes up almost kind of dressed in a sort of smoking jacket and is kind of sipping cocktails. He says, I think I'm a nice guy. There's nothing morally bankrupt about me. Which <laughs> just, the way I avoided getting beaten up at school was by being so insignificant no one noticed me. This week, Billy Fury to Alan Smith, the enemy 65. I do what my recording manager wants me to do. Sometimes I, just, I suggest something else. They don't seem to want to know, which is the story of so many recording artists in those days. Way Robbins on the failure of reggae in America. This is Village Voice in 1974. And on Bob Marley says, his highly politicised religious musings with a beat like a slinky down a stairway have yet to find a wide audience. His broad point is that reggae was never going to catch on in America. And he was broadly right about that. Marley had some traction, but that's been about it. Oh, yes, a certain Barney Hoskins sees Susie and the Banshees oh, in, in 1981. He says, <laughs> beautiful, dark, banana-split girl, the pain of your pretenses, the nausea of your words, bind us in a spell. You just did that to humiliate me. <laughs> <laughs> Moving um, swiftly on, as uh, you would say. Well, I... Uh, <laughs> I, I, I remember the show, actually. It was a great show. And I, I Susie and the Banshees, from that period with John McGeoch playing, are a little bit of a sort of guilty gothic pleasure yeah, for me. Sure. I know I should hate them, but I really I really rather liked them. I think that was the best they ever were around that time. Yeah. Uh, yes, you know. Well, of course, The Scream was fantastic. Yeah. Oh, no, Hong, Kong, liked... Hong Kong Gardens Hong Kong from Garden, around the time, yeah. you know. I was going to do a quote from John, who was still in those days, John Cougar, but I've decided against it because it'll probably offend everyone. So uh, over yes, to you. So. <laughs> I know the quote you refer to. <laughs> well, I'm just going to, I'm going to say that I've run out of time and Jasper, I'm going to hand over to you if you've got anything 
you know, I'll keep a burning it super, desire. super brief. Just, yes. just, just to mention for any of you radio head heads out there, I added a six and a half thousand word interview oh. with Thom York and Johnny Green. Poor Mark. Poor, <laughs> Poor you. Mark. Like, well, look, at least he Mark does it so you it. don't have to. I do it so you don't have to. There you go. <laughs> it, it's a quite. I mean, Johnny Greenwood. I, you know, they're they're both pretty articulate in it. It's a, it's interesting if you're interested in it. There's a funny quote when the Kid A reviews came out accusing us of being willfully difficult. I was like, if that was true, we've done a much better job of it. It's not that challenging. Everything's still four minutes long. It's melodic, yeah. which I think is a, for a fair point. Johnny Johnny Greenwood, I think, is... He's, you know, I, I, don't, I like reading interviews with him. He's interesting. I find Thom, York, or Thorn, as my OCR processing word documents always calls him, deeply tedious, but... That's so that's Simon Reynolds interviews them both yeah. uh, in the wire, and it's 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 worth a read, if, sure. as I say, if you're interested in that. And then the other funny thing is an interview Simon Price interviews the Welsh Wu Tang Clan Goldie Looking Chain. Can you just say <laughs> that again? Can you just say that again for anyone who wasn't listening? The Welsh Wu Tang Clan yes. Goldie Looking Chain. <laughs> just want to be sure I heard you right. They're they're, re- they're just a funny bunch of guys from Newport, and it's it, it's a very funny article. And they come out with just amusing things. Regardless of whether we got a record deal, chips in two hats, we'd still be doing it. We get bored and we've all got the mental age of 12-year-olds. Give us a box of matches and we're laughing. And that's very much the tone of the whole interview. They just sort of accidentally became fairly big in the UK, just sort of with their parody comedy rap stuff. And it's worth reading, you know, just for a laugh. Fantastic. Brilliant. Is that your lot? That's my lot. Well, my gosh, it's been a marathon today, but it's been really good fun speaking with you, John. I hope it hasn't been too too torturous. Uh, no, no, certainly no, no. dredging up the issues that pain you so much. <laughs> At least three. You're going to need to go and lie down after this. But thank you so much for joining us from the Florida Keys. You guys are pleasant company, so I enjoyed it quite a lot. And if you want me, want me to come back again, I'll be glad to come oh, back that, anytime. That would be, would be delightful. Uh, you got any immediate kind of plans? I don't know what the rules are. We're back in full lockdown here. No, no, no one's making any music other than in their bedrooms. Have you got anything sort of planned musically or creatively no. that you can actually do in the next few months no not really actually uh no is the answer because <laughs> we, are, <laughs> we are locked down here i've been playing at jazz jazz gigs regularly down here but the place everything's closed and yeah. that's not happening i mean last uh, spring my wife and i put out some videos we made here in the house some low-tech videos of parodies of songs like smile and look for the silver lining and things like that i'll send i'll send one to you barney yeah, you can, i'll send you the yes. link and you Please can pass it on to your buddies. Yeah, it'd be great. I saw you and your wife do a little cabaret show in a bar in New York many years ago and enjoyed, I remember enjoying it immensely. It was oh, it was very, very amusing. And Well, so maybe we should just enjoy the good news that's coming in from Georgia, especially if there are any Trump supporters listening. We, we always encourage feedback from those people. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and get it. And get it. <laughs> but um, we, before we started recording, you were talking, a bit about that, uh, John. So I hope you are feeling a little more optimistic about the end of one American nightmare anyway. Oh, God, it's long overdue. Long overdue. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a stain on American history, isn't it, really? Let's just hope it stays that way and doesn't expand into, into anything more than that. Happy for you anyway. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Hands across the water from Brexit Britain. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. 
I'm a freak for like old, old blues things, and you know I, I listen to everything from traditional jazz to modern jazz, and I like gospel music, and I, I always like listening to blues singers. You know, I mean, you know, from Sonny Boy, Sonny Terry, and Brian McGee, Led Belly. I mean, that whole line of blues singers. I always like listening to that music, Cla- uh, you know, to relax. Classical music, gospel music, jazz. That was Van Morrison in conversation with John Tobler in 1979, concluding this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest John Simon. Please visit his website at johnsimonmusic.net for information about his book Truth, Lies and Hearsay and much else besides. Please note that this episode was recorded just before the events at the US Capitol on January 6th, 2021. The hosts were Barney Hoskins, Mark Pringle and Martin Collier, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Murison Bowie. The Rocks Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com. I, you know, I had a, just a couple of loose ends that I had as long as we're talking. I'm on here. When you talked about Aretha's piano, Jasper, that sampling. Yeah. That Muscle Shoals and Studio I went to, they had that piano that she played respect on. Oh, brilliant. And it's always been a problem to mic a piano because you can't leave, if you leave it open, then all the other sounds in the room come in. So they had taken the lid off, taken the hinges off, and put plywood all the way around the piano that was about two feet high, then put the lid on top of that and stuck a mic through a hole that they drilled in there. That was the reason. Amazing. This is the one song rock. Chilling here, my partners, and they're about to do a gas face rebuttal. It's quite subtle. His name is Yeah, yeah. He gonna kick it next. Uh-huh. And I'm gonna kick it like this. Uh-huh. A gas face can either be a smile or a smoke when a pair's a monkey runs to cork clock. What?